Well, recently I um, got to watch a bit of the ABC series that's called Old People's Home for Teenagers. I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's a bit of a follow-on from a previous series uh, that was called Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds, if you saw any of that, super cute. Um, and as a high school teacher, someone who works with teenagers, I was pretty intrigued about what this would look like because I thought four-year-olds is one thing, um, but teenagers is a whole different ball game. So what would, what would this look like if you threw in a whole lot of teenagers with a bunch of older people? Um, if you haven't seen it, essentially it, it, it's a series, a short series that documents a social experiment, which really is looking at... I think, at the power of community and the power of relationship building, particularly for people um, in older age who've become socially isolated. Um, and in this series, in the case of the teenagers, some of them who were really socially struggling. So what would happen if you put together these older people and some teenagers? If you haven't seen it, I recommend it um, as a really heartwarming kind of watch. Uh, because it really examines then some of the positive outcomes for people's uh, emotional well-being, but probably all sorts of other well-being, phys even physical well-being, um, that happens when you're in relationship and when you're in community. Uh, how it works is that the psychologists and researchers who put together this series sort of design um, a, a number of different little activities that these people do on a daily basis. And really, I mean, they could really be doing anything, and the activities are really just an opportunity for relationships to form between the older people and the teenagers. And um, one, one of my favourite moments was in this particular episode where there was a, a fun activity that they were tasked with doing. Um, it made me chuckle a little bit and... Um, grown a little bit at how old I, <laughs> how old I am <laughs> because um, the, this particular activity involved a street directory and I was like, oh yeah, I remember the days of using a street directory, just like the older people in the series. But anyway, um, what they did was um, they put together these small groups, combinations of the older adults, as they call them, I thought it's a nice term to call them, the older adults and the teenagers. And um, thankfully, neither of those groups were responsible for driving. Um, but the particular activity involved these small groups having to navigate their way to find some homes of other older people who they were delivering meals to. So it's basically meals on wheels. Uh, but the only way that they could get there, it was the job of the teenagers to do the navigating and they were not allowed to use their phones, which was some sort of like nothing short of a travesty. They were just handed these street directories. <laughs> and um, you can probably imagine kind of what this looked like um, and the challenges of them working out how to get where, where they were going using only a street directory. And there's this moment where this one girl who finds the task particularly challenging is says something like, why, why would I use this book of maps when, to work out where to go? I could just turn my phone on. And on the app, there's a lady. She'll tell me. She'll tell me where to go. Um, and the, the thought behind it was, you know, why should she puzzle over what was to her these indecipherable pages in this funny old book when she could just turn on her Google, Google Maps and the lady would tell her how far to go, where to turn, which way. Um, and of course, when you've successfully arrived at your destination, she'll confirm that as well. Uh, the exercise to her was incredibly challenging and frustrating. Uh, I was thinking about that girl as we um, 
uh, in this series at the moment as a church, as a community, because uh, we've been, Nate's had us in this teaching series from Acts called Where To From Here, uh, just like those teenagers trying to work out where to go as a church, as a community, we're examining, okay, wh- what's next for us? Where where are we headed? Uh, and I think sometimes determining direction in life can feel a bit frustrating uh, and sometimes like that girl, if you're anything like me, we can feel a little bit like, you know, God is a bit like the Google Maps lady. Um, if he knows the way, why can't, he, why can't he just tell us? You know, why wouldn't he just make it really obvious where to go, how far, when to turn? Um, today we're going to think about that a bit, particularly as we look uh, at Acts. So if you want to get a text in front of you, hard copy, app, whatever way you're going, um, on that Bible app, I probably can't tell you how to get there. I know Nate's been telling us, if, you, if you're onto this Bible app thing and you go to the events, I think it is, you'll find Richmond Baptist and you'll see my little outline there. If you can't get to that, just get to Acts 5 would be helpful. Um, because we're going to look at this text and we're going to think about how to determine direction. Um, I think we think about it, how we do that as a whole church community. And I hope we think, can think personally about how we do that in our own lives as well. Of course, one particular contributor to our season of change uh, that we've been thinking about is the fact that our building, our home, I think since 1895, I'm not good with history or facts, but I was trying to look it up, that's a long time that that this place has been our home, and this home is being acquired by the government, if you haven't been around to hear that, if you're new, um, because of all the, the roadworks that are happening. And so we've been spending the last month praying particularly about that situation. And I don't know what thoughts might have arisen for you during that time of thinking about this move, about the need to find a new building. Perhaps depending on how long you've been here, uh, you might have thought about this a lot or you might not really have thought about it at all. And also depending on your disposition, you might really care about it or you might just not be bothered by it at all. Um, I was thinking about this because... In my lifetime, I know I've only lived in three houses, so actually four. I always forget about one because I was born in Glasgow, but I have no recollection of that. So very short time there. But then there was really that, in my memory, there's the house I grew up in with my parents. There was the house I moved out into when I moved out of home. And then there was a house we moved into when I married Brad. So not very many houses, and I'm not a big fan of change. And so that's that's plenty of moves for me. I don't really, <laughs> I don't need too many more moves. Um, but of course, after I married Brad, I discovered that he's moved something like 15 times in his life, and. Um, he, he quite likes it, and so after we moved house, uh, after we moved into the house that we're in at the moment, he started talking about moving house, like very seriously, like looking for another house, and I was just like, what? Like, we just got here. What, what are you talking about? I was very happy with the status quo, whereas, of course, Brad loves something new, and he's often eager for a change. So I reckon there's probably a bit of that amongst our community, both of those things. Some people who would just be super excited about, wow, this is great, we get to move into a new building. And then some other people who are like, this one's really cute and fine. Um, it'll be really great if we could stay here. Nevertheless, we have to think about it. For some of us, it's going to cause excitement, others apprehension. And I guess in one sense, a move is just a building. And at the same time, I think it's a really significant change because we know that place and physical space and geographical location do matter because they connect with community. So this morning, let's think a bit about that. Where to from here? In a literal sense, about our location. 
as well as some other things as well. So if you haven't been here, over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the story that's documented in Acts, um, the story of the early church, which, of course, for them was a very significant season of change. There was lots of things changing. Uh, We started out with Mark looking at the ascension when Jesus left, and the, the disciples were then thinking, what now? And then last week, we were looking with Nate at Pentecost, the significant change of the gift of the Holy Spirit and what that meant for their what now. Today, we're turning to Acts 5 as we think about which way, which way are we going, where to from here. So we're going to think through th- three things just to keep me on track. The first one is a way out. The second one is a way forward. And then the third one is the way that endures, a way out, a way forward, and then the way that endures. Uh, so going to Acts 5, if you've got your text in front of you, we're just going to start back a little bit to get some context on what's happening now. Jesus has ascended. The, they've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, now what's happening? So we're going to start back in verse 12, uh, which is a good snapshot of what was going on. So verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So this is what's going on in the early church. Uh, It's it's a pretty amazing picture. There's a real stir about town. Uh, I think we can only imagine the kind of buzz and excitement uh, that would have been happening at, at this time because the apostles are now doing miracles. Crowds are flocking in. They're keen, it says, even just for Peter's shadow to pass over them so that they can be healed. Can you imagine what that would be like? I think it's very reminiscent of Jesus' own ministry, the kind of um, healing sounds like, you know, I was thinking about the one about Peter's shadow, thinking, wow, imagine that. It sounds a little bit to me like that time when the woman with the issue of bleeding, just touches Jesus' cloak and is healed. Sort of like that. Um, And just as Jesus' ministry had been so clearly marked with the power of God in healing action, so now we can see God is marking the ministry of the apostles with the same power that that Jesus had had in his ministry. It's a real tangible presence of God in action, bringing life and healing. So that's what's happening in town now we look at what, what happens to the apostles. So thinking about, we're looking for a way out. Uh, and we go to verse 17 and we discover that with all this action, not everybody is buzzing. So look at verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. Uh, so this is the situation for the apostles, and I guess now that they've got to find a way out or, or they're stuck in there, they're in jail. Um, thinking a bit about the Sadducees, we're told here that they were jealous. 
Uh, they were envious of the, the, the apostles and their rising power and popularity, I guess because their own authority was being challenged. We know that um, the Sadducees had a situation where they had this kind of shared power with the Romans who were ruling at the time. And so what's going on in town? This buzz that's about the apostles is in a way... Um, a sort of threatening and destabilising element in the culture. And so they just really want to silence this message about Jesus that the apostles are teaching. Uh, you could say that they're really not on board with what God was doing. In fact, they're staunchly against it, enough to throw these guys in jail. Uh, despite the fact, I, I, just think about it. Think about what was happening, those kinds of miracles um, even though the apostles' ministry, we would say, is so clearly marked by what could only be divine miracles, only the work of God, they just miss seeing the hand of God at work. I think because they can only, they're taking it at face value, they see only the human activity, the, the thing that's interfering with their power and their position and popularity. And so in a sense, they just can't see past themselves to see what God was doing. And I think their own expectations of what the work of God should look like were getting in the way and causing them to miss actually seeing God at work in the person of Jesus and now in the ministry of the apostles. So they miss the, they miss the work of God. The apostles are there, they're locked up. And if we try and imagine what they'd be thinking or feeling, obviously, if you're stuck, no one wants to be stuck in jail. So they're looking for a way out. So that brings us to verse 19, which says, but... During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And then verse 20 says to them, go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell all the people all about this new life. So verse 21, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. So before we think about the fact that they just immediately go back to doing exactly the same thing that had um, got them into jail. Let's think for a minute about this sort of prison break. Uh, the apostles, having landed themselves in what we, we would see as being a fairly impossible pickle of a situation, they're locked up in jail, no way out, they suddenly have this way out. And it's not your everyday kind of exit, is it? Uh, I think you and I would say this is undeniably divine intervention, where God shows up in a very tangible way to provide the way out of the problem that the apostles were in. The question I want to ask this morning is, does God do that anymore? When we're facing a problem situation and we're looking for a way out, can we expect God to show up tangibly? Our church right now, we're facing a current problem. That's the problem of this building. Our church is home being acquired. We can't stay in it for much longer. And my question is, couldn't God just intervene? I mean, this is the God who hangs stars in the universe, it wouldn't be that hard for him to just reroute the roadworks in another direction, right? I mean, there was even a change of government. That would be a good time, God, you know, just to change the plans a little bit. I think you'll agree with me, God absolutely has the power to do that. And so then the question is, why doesn't he? Well, one thing I think that's helpful to acknowledge as we think about, you know, does God do this kind of thing anymore? He shows up tangibly to give these guys a way out. Um, this period in the early church that we're reading about was, of course, a very significant and unique time in salvation history. 
right? All of history had, in a sense, been leading up to the birth, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so now, this next season, the apostles are tasked with a really important job, that task of spreading the life-giving message about Jesus. And it does seem to me that at that time, God marked their ministry with special signs and wonders as evidence of his power and presence, you know, that this absolutely was God at work, um, just as he had done with Jesus. But the question still remains, does that mean that God doesn't intervene like that anymore in our day? Is that something just special for Bible times or can we expect that of, of God now? When we're looking for a way out, can we expect God to get involved? A while ago, um, some friends we knew went through something incredibly tragic and during their grieving, one of them said something along the lines of, I just don't think that God intervenes in human affairs anymore. Like, I guess he's ultimately in control, but I think for the most part, he just lets the world run its natural course. Of course, his experience of being in a terrible situation and crying out to God to intervene, but not having his prayers answered, led him to believe that the way God relates to us now is with a more kind of hands-off approach. And that miraculous divine intervention was something just for Bible times and not something that we should really expect anymore. Though I understood where he was coming from, I just really struggled to agree with this idea because I just can't quite believe that God is not at work in the world anymore and that the God who knows how many hairs are on your and my head at the moment, all my hair's falling out. So that's a, you know, that's a full-time job, just keeping up with how many hairs are left. You know, that he's just not interested in working in our lives anymore. I think God is still at work in the world to bring about his good purposes, just as he was in the time of the early church. But I do wonder whether sometimes our expectations of what we think would be good for God to do can get in the way of us seeing him at work. It seems like he's not at work because he's not doing what we would like him to. Is it that God has his hands off or are we just missing what he's doing because we can't see past our own expectations of what we'd like him to do? Maybe even a bit like those Sadducees, do we sometimes miss seeing God at work because he's not showing up the way we expect him to and not doing the things the way we would like him to? I think recently, I, um, the kind of many of you know a bit of our um, journey in the last couple of months. Um, if you don't, we, we had a baby four months ago. He's four months old now, Fletcher. He's happily sleeping, praise the Lord, at the back there. Um, but he's had an incredibly challenging start to his life. And um, going through this very, very intense time, I certainly could relate to that guy a bit. I think those times of intense suffering can really challenge our faith. Um, you know, when, when you have a baby boy and he needs to be resuscitated at birth and then he spends the first month of his life on life support because he can't breathe independently and then he goes into heart failure and he almost dies again and then you have to watch him every day struggling with the basics of life that come naturally to most other babies like eating and sleeping, simple things like burping, ask Jacob how hard it is to, to get Fletcher to get a burp out. Uh, it can be really hard in those days to believe in the goodness of God and that God is still at work to do good things in the world. 
It can be very hard to believe that God still provides a way out of difficult situations when he doesn't give you the way out that you want. And he just doesn't seem to be intervening in the way that you'd like him to. Uh, There's a song that we sing here quite often. Isabella keeps me up with um, which songs are a little bit oversung. And we could, you could say it maybe has been a little oversung at times. Um, and sometimes the songs that are oversung get really stuck in your head. And it's that one that has lines about um, all my life you've been faithful, all my life you've been so, so good. Uh, and there's the bridge. It's just your goodness is running after me. And um, I don't know how music works for you, but um, I sometimes have a little bit of control over what's in my head, but often I have things playing in my head that I don't put there and I sometimes can't get out. And um, on Tuesday night, Fletcher and I had to go back into the hospital. He had to have an overnight study to see how his oxygenation was going. Uh, We go to the hospital quite often and my stomach churns every time I walk through the front doors. And we're in this room, completely void of any sort of signs of life, and... um, you know, our son is like wired up beyond recognition, looking like some kind of horrible science experiment. And I'm lying there just hoping for the thing to be over or actually praying desperately that he would sleep because if he doesn't sleep, they can't do the study and we have to do it again. And the song that's stuck in my head is a silly song. It's not a silly song, but I thought it was a silly song at the time about your goodness is running after me. And in that situation, I don't feel like the goodness of God is running after me. Um, and I can too easily just be, be like, really? Really, God? And I guess um, the thing I have to affirm this morning is that these past few months, although they've been incredibly challenging... I think Brad and I would say the most harrowing days of our lives. Um, Even so, I found myself just clutching to that idea that deep in my gut, I know that God is good. I know that he's good. And so even when my circumstances seem to challenge the truth of that, I'm going to hold to it as being true. I'm going to continue to believe that God is good. And because God is innately good, he works to bring about good. And I don't think he has his hands off. I think God is still at work in the world to bring about his good purposes. He was in the time of the apostles, and I believe he is still now. Sometimes we can't see it because we want a miraculous prison break like those guys got out of our situation. Sometimes we miss it because we just, he's just not doing what we expect. Um, But I'm going to challenge us this morning in our situation as a community and in whatever you're going through personally that you just love a way out from, I'm going to challenge us to keep trusting in the goodness of God and to watch and to wait to see him work in whatever way he chooses to, looking for a way out. So the apostles are out and the second thing we're going to think about is then what's the way forward? What should they do once they're out? So go back to verse 21. Uh, Halfway through the verse, um, or the beginning of the verse, it tells us, as we read before, um, they got out, they entered the temple courts, and just as they've been told, they begin to teach. Uh, What happens then? Well, when the high priest and his associates arrive, um, they they don't know that they're there teaching, they don't don't bump into them, and so they call together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and they send to the jail. They're ready to get these guys and put them on trial. But of course, verse 22, on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, verse 23, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Imagine how perplexed they are. 
On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men, you can't help but think this is a bit funny, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And at that, this is not funny to them, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force, I think they would have liked to, because they feared that the people would stone them. Verse 27, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. That is the name of Jesus. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. You just kind of hear the frustration in what he's saying. These guys feel like they're losing control. They're saying, you're doing exactly what we told you not to. <laughs> um, very frustrated. What does um, Peter say? Go to verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. And God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And we are witnesses of, witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. I can't help but see the, the comical side of this situation, um, but also just marvel at the guts and the kind of grit of these apostles. You know, what would you do if you just got out of jail, even though it was miraculous? I think at least I'd like a little rest, you know, short holiday after that fairly intense experience. Um, probably first on my list would be not go back to the temple and teach the people about Jesus, because, of course, that's what landed them in prison in the first place. Um, wouldn't be keen to go straight back. Probably it'd be a good idea to just lay low for a bit. Uh, but they say, verse 29, we must obey God. What's the way forward for these apostles? Obey God. They were compelled to do what God had told them, even though it seems like a really risky move from a human point of view. They'd been given a way out. Their way forward was keep obeying God. Interestingly, of course, this is not the first time that they'd gotten into trouble. If you go a chapter back in, in chapter 4, uh, Peter and John there were already arrested and put in jail. So that's also why these guys are a bit frustrated because they keep locking them up and um, then they just keep doing the same thing, teaching about Jesus. Uh, but we'd have to ask, are these guys a bit crazy? You know, are they just looking for trouble? Couldn't they have just gone a bit underground for a while? Or, you know, rather than going back to the temple and teaching, you choose, choose another method. There'd be plenty of other ways, you know, gather in someone's... <laughs> something that's not going to get them in quite the same level of trouble. But we know their great confidence and courage in pushing forward the way that they, that they did is because they're not on their own bandwagon. They're not doing their own thing, forging ahead with their own ideas. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit and they're doing the work that God has told them to do. And so then when it comes to having to give a defence before this massive religious council, they're not really defending themselves they're just defending the work of God, which they have great confidence in. So as we think about facing a what now, looking for a way forward, um, especially for us as a church, I think the one thing that we can affirm uh, that's always the same is that the way forward is always to be about doing the work of God. Because God is at work in the world through his people. That's how he worked in the day of the apostles and that's still how he works now. 
He's still at work to bring about his good purposes. And the way he's doing that is through his people. That's the apostles in the early church. And that's you and I and many other believers around the world now in our day. The problem is that the apostles had an angel of the Lord turn up, do something very tangible, open the doors. It's clearly there. And then command them, seems like audibly, go stand in the temple courts, tell the people about this new life. Um, I really like that because God told them exactly what they should do. Uh, and that, I think that would fill you with a bit of confidence, even though it was a risky move. Uh, they'd been given a really clear direction that was obviously divine. And I think that would have helped them, you know, know the, know the way forward. And sometimes I just feel like I wouldn't mind it if, probably get a bit of a shock, but I wouldn't mind it if an angel of the Lord came and turned up and just told me exactly what I was supposed to do. I don't think I'm the only one who feels like that. Um, we go regularly back to the hospital to see Fletcher's paediatrician. Uh, he's just the loveliest man and he's a man of faith and he's taking some leave soon and so we asked him, um, you know, what's, what's he going to get up to? And, of course, he said, oh, he's going to travel and he's going to go to Rome. I thought, oh, half your luck. But then he said the thing, the thing that he's looking forward to when he goes to Rome is that there's this little ancient church, I can't remember how old, old you know, thousands of years old, um, hundreds, I guess, <laughs> an old church, um, and he's going to go there and he's going to sit there and ask the Holy Spirit what he should do with his life. And I was a little bit flawed when he said this because this man is a highly gifted neonatologist who spends his days, like he sometimes runs out of the appointment because there's a baby in ICU who needs their life saved. This is the kind of work that he does. I thought, you know, you're doing something pretty significant. And yet he has this feeling like he needs to sit and ask the Holy Spirit what he should do with his life. I think um, there's many of us who are often asking that question, what's the way forward? God, what, what should I be doing now with my life? What's next? I guess in one sense, it's a daily unfolding mystery. We, we should keep asking that question as we move forward, asking God to guide us by the Holy Spirit, just as he is. Um, we might not get to an ancient church in Rome, unfortunately, but wherever we are, we know the Holy Spirit's there, asking for guidance about the specifics of what we should be doing with our lives. And then, even as we wait for specifics, I think we know from what the Bible teaches us that there's a sense that at the heart of it, the core of what we should be doing is always the same, isn't it? Um, it's riddled throughout, throughout Scripture in so many different ways. But the verse I love that always rings in my mind is that one from Micah 6 um, that says that God has shown us what is good. What does, what does the Lord require of us? He wants us to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. And that never changes. And so in one sense, what's the way forward for us as a church? We must continue to do the work of God in the world to bring about justice, to act with mercy and to do it with humility. At the same time, we look to the Holy Spirit to guide us specifically what will that look like in the next chapter. And as we're doing that, we don't waver from obeying God in the work that he's always commanded his people to do in the world. Well, finally, let's just look quickly at um, this, this third thing, the way that endures. Go to verse 33, just to see the end of the story, or the end of this little bit of the story. So it says, when they, that's the Sanhedrin, heard this, the apostles' response, what, what they, their defence that they said to them, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, 
who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. For some time ago, Thudas, some guy called Thudas, appeared, claiming to be somebody. About 400 men rallied to him, but he was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So this guy, Gamaliel, suddenly comes to the fore. We understand he's respected and so he's listened to by the rest of the Sanhedrin. He's got a pretty interesting idea to, to offer, doesn't he? He's saying that when a purpose or activity has merely a human origin, it's doomed to fail all on its own. No need to worry about it because it's just going to fizzle out anyway. But the work of God, on the other hand, is unstoppable. No one can get in its way even if they try. If they try, then they're fighting against God himself and we all know who's going to win in that situation. I ask myself the question about this, is what he's saying entirely true? It's kind of an interesting hypothesis to put forward, right? Uh, Can you think of any endeavours that are merely human that are successful? I think think probably can, right? So is every human endeavour doomed to fail? Well, not immediately, but I guess you could say uh, purely human endeavours don't have any lasting significance. We might look at it like that. Um, Either way, the bit of what he says that is, I I think is 100% true is the bit about God. The work of God is unstoppable. You cannot stop it. It doesn't matter what, what, if you don't like it, you try and get in the way. It's the work of God. It will go ahead regardless if that's what God has determined to do. I love the way that it's phrased in the message. It says, if this program or this work is merely human, it'll fall apart. But if it is of God, there is nothing you can do about it. And you better not be found fighting against God. As individuals and as a community, when we're looking for direction, I think we should be really careful that we invest our time as a community and our lives as people in the way that endures. That is that we get on board with the unstoppable work of God and be careful not to just waste our time on merely human endeavours that have no lasting significance. I think this is important for us in this season because we know that buildings and material things are entirely necessary. This building here, this property here, uh, it's a, a really good gift from God that has been enjoyed over many years. And we should. It's important for us to put time and energy into finding our next home because that will matter for our community. Physical space matters, geography matters, relates to community. But like any good material gift... A building project can just become a distraction from the main thing. I think we should be careful about this. And during this chapter of time where we're going to expend energy, we'll have to on our our physical space, we should just be careful that we're not 
distracted from making sure we are on the way that endures, that we're still investing our hearts and our lives and our time and our energy into the unstoppable work of God. Because that's not a building, right? That's about lives. That's about the things that last to eternity. What exactly will that look like? Well, the unstoppable work of God, that sounds to me like something very grandiose. That sounds like Peter and his shadow healing some people on the way. Uh, Sounds very difficult to attain to. Um, Maybe if we were a bit more super Christian, we could get involved. Um, But of course, it's not that. To get involved in the unstoppable work of God, I think, is to see where God is at work in whatever sphere we're in and to take part in it. Look for whatever God is doing in the places that he's put us and to be, to be part of it, to, to put our hearts and our lives and our energy there. It's like the apostles say, God raised Jesus. God exalted him. It's all the work of God. And now we're just the witnesses. We're just obeying what God told us to do in telling other people about Jesus. So the question is for us, what is God about doing in your home, in your workplace, in your community? All sorts of things, I imagine. Maybe a helpful starting point is we know the work of God is always about bringing love, bringing joy, and bringing peace. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing those things. That's unstoppable work. That's work that will endure. And God does that work through his people. So we should ask the question, how can we continue to bring love and joy and peace to the places that we're in? Maybe we can go away thinking about specifically about what actions would bring that, what words would bring that, what kind of advocacy would bring that, and perhaps even what kind of change is necessary to bring that. Okay, Fletcher tells me I went too long, so uh, let's, let's pray before we finish. God, you are good. You're abundantly good. Uh, we read about it in the pages of Scripture, but somewhere in our hearts, I, ho- I hope um, deeply that we know your goodness. And Lord, I just want to pray that over anyone in this place this morning who's in a hard place and who's questioning your goodness. I pray somehow this morning that you would reveal your heart to them, that you are a good God and you are about doing good things in the world. Um, Lord, thanks for encouraging us with this picture of the early church. Just ask that you would hearten us and energize us that you are still at work. Maybe not the same way, um, exactly the same way as what you were doing then, but you are still at work in the world and you are at work through us in the places and the spaces that we're in. God, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would guide us in this, this chapter that we're walking through. Let us not be on our own funny little bandwagon, forging ahead with things that are just going to fizzle out. Would you guide us so that we're doing your unstoppable work, work that lasts into eternity. We pray it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.